everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. My name is Amos. Welcome to the Vineyard. Glad you guys came. I would love for you to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. It's been very predictable so far in our series in Daniel, chapter 1, chapter 2, this week, chapter 3. Next week, though, chapter 6, uh, which will be a famous story about Daniel and the lion's den. But if you didn't grab a Bible on your way in, there are some on the back carts. And if you didn't grab a little communion cup, I got a gluten-free one. Whoops. Anybody want to trade? No. Anyway. Uh, We're going to be taking communion right out of the teaching today, so this would be a good time for you to go grab a cup or grab a Bible. There's still another Bible or two in the back. Um, While you do that and open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Oh, thanks. Uh, Just want to chart out the next few weeks. So we got three more weeks in Daniel. Then it's the Christmas series. We're doing a series called Christmas Spirit. The real spirit of Christmas is the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Uh, and so we'll be looking at some like ways that the Holy Spirit shows up in our lives. After Christmas, uh, we have, do you remember, we talked about second session a few weeks ago. This is something new after our Sunday service, just decided that we're going to spend six whole weeks talking about Sabbath during the second session, while during our normal worship service, that's still going to be at 10 and an hour and 15 minutes, we'll be doing a series called God Experience, where we'll talk about how to hear God's voice, what we do during ministry time as we pray for each other. We'll be taking a look at communion. We'll be taking a look at worship, like the the ways that we experience God. And then after that series, some of you I know are big fans of The Chosen, right? We're going to, I don't know how long that series is going to be yet because the season three of The Chosen hasn't been released yet and I don't know how much content they cover. So after the God Experience series in February, we'll be doing a little series on the life of Jesus using the, is it a television show? Is that the right word for it these days? It's not really on TV. It's a, you know, you watch on the app. It's a series, a stream, a series you can stream for free about the life of Jesus and his closest friends. So that's like the next three or four months. I'm excited. You excited? Good. Okay. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, before I get into it, I want to remind you of a little bit of what was going on in Daniel chapter 1. Somewhere around 600 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a great empire of the ancient Near East, sweeps across the like Turkey, Jerusalem, Judea region and takes some of Israel's finest uh, the princes, the, the educated, the, the, you know, the leaders of the community back to Babylon with the intent to turn them into good Babylonian citizens. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar didn't mind if you still called yourself uh, a worshiper of the God of Israel. He just wanted to make sure that he replaced your values and your lifestyle with Babylonian values and, and make choices like Babylonians would. So he's basically wanting to educate 
uh, transform the hearts and the minds of these exiles into good little Babylonian citizens. And he had a three or four step uh, strategy to do this. Can we put up that next slide? Uh, isolation, right? Take them away from their hometown, uh, enculturation and integration. So in other words, there's education. He puts them through a rigorous study program. Think of it as Babylon University. They had really cool t-shirts. Uh, the merch was fantastic. But uh, we're going we're gonna to teach you our stories. We're going to teach you the ways that we interpret dreams. We're going to teach you our history and the things that are most important to us. But it's not just education. They also bring out the finest food that Babylon has to offer, the best of the cultural extravagances, and lay them out before Daniel and his friends and say, "There, eat it. Of course, the problem here is that these foods violate the values and beliefs of Daniel and his friends because they're Jewish and these foods aren't kosher. And so they say, no. And then finally, uh, the, the, what they're really after is they're after a new identity. To be a good Babylonian citizen means you define yourself as a human differently than the way God would define you, like the God of the Bible would define you. And so they give uh, Daniel and his friends new names. Interestingly, Daniel never calls himself by his new given Babylonian name, uh, but his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. Is that right? Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll find that coming up from time to time. Uh, there's a lot of weird big names in uh, the Babylonian, but we, we talked about different ways to be faithful to Jesus as we see in our culture that has a different set of values and beliefs and ways to make choices that we can stay rooted in our identity as followers of Jesus. So to combat the isolation that our culture sometimes tries to do, and when I say culture, I don't mean like food is bad or movies are bad. I just mean like there's something out there that Satan is trying to leverage toward winning our hearts and minds to a different set of values and beliefs. And so to avoid isolation, which is like really common, I'm going to disconnect from my church community. We're just going to like stay committed to people, whether it be uh, through a life group, through a tripod, like you need people who you can go to and say, I need prayer. I need help. I am struggling or I'm rejoicing, and I, I'm here to encourage you with what God is doing in my life. Like, we need to stay rooted in Jesus' community, uh, to say, stay rooted in the scriptures as there are different ideas being broadcast out through social media, through television and radio and streaming services and YouTube. Like, we shouldn't be learning about what, value, what we should value, what is most important, from those cultural sources. We should be finding our values, if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, in the revealed word of God. To combat the, the, the cultural like goods, the, the, like the Babylonian equivalent of the food, like, man, we really have nice stuff in this country, don't we? Like, there's a lot of things out there to buy. And the thing about buying the things is that then you need to buy more things in a few years because your iPhone 13 is no longer up to date because you know there's an iPhone 14. And your you know, perfectly good runnable minivan doesn't have the latest CarPlay feature. And so there's, like, there's always something out there that looks like it'll make you happy. And so as, as the world says, this will make you happy, the 
Christian practices of, let's say, fasting, let's say Sabbath, let's say prayer, let's say service. All these things are disciplines that keep our hearts rooted in the things that God loves. Create space for us to experience God, but then to show God's love to others. That's what I mean by Christian practices, because it'd be really easy to just scroll through Facebook or play what's a fun game that you guys play on your phones these days. I used to play uh, Clash of Clans, but I, I, what do you guys play? Roadblocks and, oh, Minecraft. Like, it'd be easy to play Minecraft all day. It'd be easy to watch Netflix all day. It'd be easy to go shopping all day. But that's not a way to stay rooted in the ways of Jesus. And then finally, uh, as, as the world vies to redefine what it means to be human, to set boundaries around our values and beliefs while serving those around us, even if they don't have those same values, and beliefs. That is basically what the book of Daniel is trying to teach us. It's an example of someone who is faithful to the true God, living in a world surrounded by people, cultural symbols, cultural goods, cultural educations that do not align with the ways of God. And one of the big challenges in our country is that people who identify as Christian don't necessarily show that in the ways that they live or the choices that they make. So it's, it's, it can be a fairly confusing world to live in. Uh, and we call that syncretism, where just as it would have been fine with Nebuchadnezzar if Daniel would have said, I worship God, but I live like a Babylonian. So many people say, I am a Christian, but live like someone who is secular or like someone who is pagan or like someone who identifies themselves as a consumer, first of all or as an American citizen, first of all. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you put God first of all. That's what it means. So, here's the context. Here's what happens in Daniel chapter 3. Would you guys stand? We're going to do this just to recognize that God is in the house, and we're going to honor him as we read his Words. And I want you to pay attention a little bit here to how the humans are reacting. What's going on as Nebuchadnezzar feels threatened? What's going on in the hearts of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And so, God, be our teacher today as we read your word. Transform us to be like you. And we pray that you would come near, Holy Spirit, and meet us wherever we are whatever we faced this week, whatever joys and whatever trials, whatever struggles, whatever pain, we need you to walk with us. So Daniel chapter three, verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted, people of all the races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground. I don't know what a zither is, but I imagine it's like an electric guitar. 
Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And it says everybody does except a few people from Judea. So jump down to verse 12. Uh, these are some astrologers that are tattletaling on the Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there are some Jews, they say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty, which is not actually true. That's an overstatement. They refuse to serve your gods. That is true. And do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him when they were brought in. So Nebuchadnezzar, verse 14, said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, this is so good. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. So he's giving, they're giving honor to this king. But verse 18, but even if he doesn't, even if our God does not save us, even if we burn up in that fiery furnace, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. You guys can have a seat. As you said, I have a question. Who knows what the gold statue was depicting? What was the gold statue? What did it look like? Bible trivia question here. What did the gold statue look like? That's what I thought. Why do you think that? <laughs> so, so, fair enough. So I grew up, and in, in the uh, the the kids' Bibles, there's always a picture of King Nebuchadnezzar as the statue, right? Now, funny thing is, it doesn't actually say what the image is in this passage. We actually have reason to think that it's probably not a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar based on the description in verse uh, 12, because it doesn't say the statue of you, Nebuchadnezzar. It says the statue that you set up. Um, now, it belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. It's his idea. He commissions the project. He makes the decree. But we don't actually know what this statue looks like. It could have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't seem like it's a statue of a particular god of the Babylonians. It seems like whatever it is, it represents Babylon, like the empire, the power, including its gods, including its wealth, including its military, including King Nebuchadnezzar. So it becomes, it seems, uh, the, this is what the commentators suggest, is that it's an image for Babylon. 
And so worshiping the image shows that you have pledged allegiance, so to speak, to the empire. Like I worship Babylon and I will respect Babylon and I will obey Babylon. And so I'll say that I had a plan to teach this book of Daniel last spring. And I felt like God said, wait. And then I had a plan to teach Daniel earlier this fall. And I felt like God said to wait. And now I'm teaching about what God says or warns about ultimate allegiance being given to your nation on the Sunday before an election. So this is not my choice, and this is not super fun to say, but what uh, I want to go through today, first of all, is to remind you that worldly powers will always try to leverage religious zeal in order to gain followers and influence. This is the first thing I want to talk about today. The second thing is two ways we respond to threat, and the third is a theology for suffering. I think this reminder that worldly powers are looking for religious zeal is an important reminder for us in our nation at this time. And it's okay to love your country, and it's a good thing to serve your country, and I can bless that. But what you need to have your antenna up for is when your country or when the political party that you align with is vying for your hearts and for religious zeal or trying to leverage your religious zeal to accomplish their political ends. And so what's really easy is to say, oh yeah, I'm a conservative Republican. The liberals are definitely... Uh, creating an alternative religion that the people who vote Democrat are giving their hearts to and worshiping. Or I'm a liberal Democrat, and it's really easy to see how the Republicans who, who vote this, that way all the time uh, have given their hearts and their ultimate allegiance to their political party and let their political party define the values instead of the Bible and the political beliefs get read into the Bible instead of the other way around. It's really easy to look at the other people and say, oh yes, you are doing that. What I'm asking you to do today and through not just this election cycle, but as long as like you're a citizen, as long as you're trying to engage in the political world, to have your antenna up for your own party and pay attention to the stories that they tell and the ways that they are vying for your heart and for your mind, for the religious zeal that they are invoking or provoking, for that matter. Because I see it. I see it in both sides. So one word or one label to describe this warning is to like, be on guard against Christian nationalism. And I... I don't like using that word because very often that word gets attached only to conservative Christians. Like when I say Christian nationalism, it's usually getting uh, applied to Christian conservatives, but I think it's as prevalent 
for those who are Christian progressives, the idea of Christian nationalism. So that's when faith and politics get confused and politics actually become the driving force for your core beliefs and your core values. So for instance, it's always dangerous to get specific. If you see a picture of Jesus wearing an American flag, this is an example of Christian nationalism. If you see a picture of Jesus wrapped in a rainbow flag, this is an example of Christian nationalism. There is a set of values and ideals that secular and political leaders want to either pin on Jesus or create the kind of zeal that a religious movement might have in order to rally people to their side. Here's another way that it happens. Because I've actually tuned into both sides of the cable news spectrum. I've said this before. They use the same script. They just put in different villains. The other side, they're bad. They're trying to destroy the country. And if you elect them, it'll all go to ruin. How does that align with love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? It is very hard to love your enemies when all the messaging from our political leaders are, the enemy is living next door. And Jesus says, love your neighbor. I don't care what they believe. So be on your guard, first of all, against the ways that worldly powers want to leverage religious zeal. The second thing that I want you to notice in the story is how two different people, well, Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand and then Shadrach, Meshach on the other, respond to threat. So Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue and all it really represents is the status quo. Like I conquered you, you give me allegiance, you do what I say. I want your hearts, not just your money. <laughs> when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down, Nebuchadnezzar is actually being threatened because the status quo, the decree that he gave, is being defied. And his response is to go into his worldly power mode and say, if you do not obey me, I will throw you in the fire. I will take control. I will overpower you to get what I want. He even, he actually like, he seems like he plays the nice guy card. Like once Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come into his courts and he doesn't, he sees that, oh, they're not actually like the troublesome type. They didn't come in like spitting in my face or yelling. He's like, okay, okay, great, great. I'll give you a second chance. Just, just bow down. It'll be fine. Their response is so remarkable. I want to read it again. <clears throat> Shadrach, this is verse uh, 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he does not, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They don't get defensive. They don't try to start a revolution. They don't 
spit in his face. You, can, you can't always tell what the emotion is in a story, but you can, you can see the juxtaposition here where Nebuchadnezzar starts mad and ends madder. Uh, and when the pressure's on, when there's threat, he, goes, he clings tighter to the worldly power that he has. Now, he had a lot of worldly power, so, but some of us have less worldly power. But some of us, when there's a threat, when finances get tight, we will... We will power up and we will do the things that we know how to do. We'll just do them harder, <laughs> longer, faster. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll like go back to the worldly power under threat. And this, sometimes it's easy to just like make this about big political moments. But what about the moments in your place of work? Because there's a good chance that you work in a place where not everybody holds the same values. There's a good chance that in your family, whether it be your like extended family, you know, the people you see on Thanksgiving or your immediate family, you know, the people who live in your house, not everybody holds the same values. And when there's a threat, one way to respond is to cling to the world. And another way to respond, the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond is they cling to God and his ways, even under threat of death. They believe that God can and will save them, but they say, even if he doesn't, my hope is actually not. You get the sense that their hope is not in being rescued from the furnace. Their hope is in eternity, because even if you throw us in this fiery furnace, we will not bow down. So one of the things that we need to be ready to do as people who follow Jesus in a world who doesn't, whatever the percentages are, we need to be ready to not participate. Whether that be in grand ways or in small ways. Among our friends, among our family, among our coworkers, non-participation is part of what it means to live in exile. And we need to know the things that God values most and that Jesus teaches so we know where we draw the lines. Because the temptation is to either separate or to integrate. But we're trying to do the Daniel thing, which is the Jesus thing, which is to love and serve those who are differently from us while maintaining our identity, our values and beliefs. And so we, we there's an example of this uh, from the... Nazi era in Germany. And so I just, I want to show you a picture of this crowd. What's upsetting about this picture is it is almost certain that all of these men, I'm pretty sure they're all men as I look, all of these men would have identified as Christian because almost everyone in Germany at the time of the rise of the Nazis, identified as Christians. Most likely they're Protestant and not Catholic because Catholics had suffered some forms of, like we'll say, like light persecution from the German nation state, which was controlled by Protestants. And so Catholics were less likely to jump on board the Nazi party, which was trying to, you know, uh, rev up religious zeal in order to accomplish their political ends. And so most likely these are Protestants 
hailing Hitler as he passes by. There's one man in this crowd that you can see. His name is August Landmester, Landmesser. And he does not raise his hand. He does not participate. The reason is not ideology. Because all of these people would have said, I am a Christian and Jesus is my first priority. And yet, when it came to allegiance, how we're going to live our lives, how we're going to vote, how we're going to support our national zeal, you could see the choices they made defied the way of Jesus. The thing that made this man different is that his heart belonged to someone else. Now, I wish that the story was his heart belonged to God. That's not actually a story. His heart belonged to a Jewish woman who he could not marry because it was against Nazi law. And when he had a child with this Jewish woman, he was put in prison because he was defiling the Aryan race. And so that was illegal. And then he was later drafted into the Nazi army and never heard from again. And so his story does not end well, but he makes a choice that is different from the crowd because his heart belongs to someone. And it is not the nation state. And so as we go through life and decide what we're going to do and not do, we need to make sure who has our hearts because that's what the world is trying to do. The world is vying for our hearts. Satan is leveraging the world and our own flesh, trying to manipulate our desires and our selfishness, as well as worldly systems and worldly powers to point our hearts toward him and his ways instead of Jesus and the ways of Jesus. And so this story in Daniel is about not participating. The story of Daniel, uh, the story from Daniel is about not participating. The story about Daniel, where he's thrown into the lion's den, is actually a, a positive example of he's like, I am going to continue to do these things even if it means my life. So for Daniel, it's I'm going to continue to pray to my God, the true God, three times a day. I will keep doing this. It doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what the threat is. In this case, with the statue, I will not do these things. It doesn't matter what the threat is. It doesn't matter what the law is. It doesn't matter where the pressure is coming from. And we live in a country where there's not, at this point in our history, legal pressure for us to deny God, like verbally, even if there is pressure to deny God and how we live. Um, but there's pressure certainly from, again, our, our friend groups, our family groups, the cultural narratives around us. And it's around how we spend our money and what we do with our bodies and what we do with our time. And I'll leave it at that. The third thing, we need a theology of suffering. And... That's pretty hard for us living in the Western world, especially for Americans, because, man, we got it good. We got cool stuff. 
I mean, we have cool phones and cool clothes and cool cars and big houses. Like, we have it good, and, and I think many of us think we can pay our way out of suffering. Like, even a little bit of discomfort, like we, we kind of shrink away from discomfort, where for most of the world and for most of history, suffering was just part of life. Like, you could expect to suffer deeply by the hand of an oppressive empire that comes and takes away your children to a foreign land through disease, through sickness, through hunger, through thirst, through all kinds of ways. Like suffering was part of the equation. And so if no one would think, oh, there's suffering, there is no God in the, the world of Daniel. But, you know, here we are in a very rich, affluent space. And I'm, I think that's something that we can enjoy. But that means that we are very suffering averse and we need to have more capacity for suffering and we need to have a way to uh, endure in suffering. So basically, this is, let's just read a little more of the story. Nebuchadnezzar ties him up and he says, heat that furnace up to seven times what it was. So really hot. In fact, it's so hot that the guys who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the flames burn up themselves. And then Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement. This is verse 24. And he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. They replied, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. This is significant. This is something you need to know about suffering. Because I know that some of you are in deep pain today, have gone through difficult times, are in difficult times, will be going through difficult times and don't see your way out. There were three men in the fire. But then Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth. And there's good reason to believe that this is actually not just an angel that God sends, but in the Old Testament, you'll find references to the angel, like the messenger, the one to bring God's good news. And so there's good reason as followers of Jesus to think that this is a, an appearing of God the Son before the incarnation of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus, before God's Son comes to earth. And so it's actually God himself who goes into the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the flames, into the suffering, into the pain, and absorbs it. Now, God could have protected these guys in a variety of ways. Like he shut the mouths of the lions. He could have just, you know, like in a Pokemon battle, he could have just like sprayed water on the furnace, and it could have gone out. Like, like don't worry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm taking away the fire. But he doesn't do that. He lets the fire burn, but they don't go in alone. He goes with them. And that is actually our theology of suffering. We don't know why God lets suffering happen. We don't know why God doesn't extinguish the flame, but we know that God will be with us in our suffering. And the story of Jesus is God coming into the world, taking on flesh, suffering, experiencing grief, 
experiencing pain, experiencing rejection, experiencing death of friends and death in himself. Like even Jesus dies. And we will too. But we don't have to face death alone and we don't have to face suffering alone. And we have a God who chooses to come into the flames with us. And so as we prepare for communion, I want to read from Psalm 23, which you probably know. You can turn there if you want. And there's a little verse that I want to highlight. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me, and you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil, and my cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Not to the end of my life, forever. Would you guys stand as I say one more thing? Verse 5. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. I always imagined, I don't know how you guys imagined the scene. I always imagined like God sets out a feast and I'm there eating it. And it's like my enemies have to kind of stand in the corner and feel hungry while I get to eat. Does anybody else like read it that way? That's a way to read it. Um, But it's actually very ambiguous what's happening here. Perhaps what it means to have a table prepared in the presence of my enemies means that I'm on one hill and my enemies are on the other hill and the enemies have a giant or they have better weapons or they have more soldiers. Maybe it is more dire. Maybe the enemies has surrounded me. Maybe that's what it means. I am in the literal presence of my enemies. They are closing in. Life is closing in. The pressure is going up. The anxiety is going up. The the despair, the depression, it's all getting more acute. And in the midst of the enemy, God prepares a table. He sits at a table and offers me what I need. And what I need most is him. And so likewise, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he is delivered into the hands of his enemies to be crucified on a cross uh, that leads to the forgiveness of our sins, he has a dinner party during the religious festival that is called Passover that is a representation of God's salvation of his people. And he takes a piece of bread that has no leaven in it. So it's not unlike this little cracker that you have. And he says, this is my body. I give it to you. And so in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of the pressure that you're facing, Jesus says, I give you myself. And so take, eat, remember, and believe.
And likewise, Jesus takes a cup and he says, this is my blood. And there's a place where Paul says, when we drink it, we actually proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is a way that we root our hope and our heart in the person of Jesus. And so take, drink, remember, and believe. I'd like to invite the worship team up. But I'd like all of you, uh, where you are, as they get set, to open up your hands. Uh, more importantly, open up your hearts to the reality that Jesus is setting a table for you in whatever life circumstance that you're facing right now. However ugly, however scary, however painful, Jesus is preparing a table. He goes with you into the fire. So come Holy Spirit. Make your presence known, O God. We bring you our hearts. We lay before you our pain. We confess our sin. And we receive your mercy. So come Holy Spirit. Bless us with hope. Fill us with joy. Meet us as we sing these songs to you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.